he was very aware of worldly conditions. He was very aware of that this is all, all the stuff of the world is in many ways illusory and insignificant. And he was always pointing himself and others toward the eternal realities of the divine existence. But he still was involved in the world and he spoke out against injustices and bigotries and greed and all the other ills of the era that he lived the era that he lived through. And that kind of thing stood out. A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Today, my guest is Philip Goldberg. Philip's latest book is Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times, Powerful Tools to Cultivate Calm, Clarity, and Courage. Phil has also written books about someone who changed my life, Paramahansa Yogananda. In 2018, Phil wrote The Life of Yogananda, the story of a yogi who became the first modern guru. You might have heard of or maybe read Autobiography of a Yogi. It's a book that changed my life. Fascinated to pick up Phil's book that kind of tells the rest of the story of Yogananda's life. Phil has authored co-authored or ghostwritten more than 20 books in his career. Part of why I was interested to talk to Phil is that Phil has been teaching and practicing mindfulness, meditation, spirituality for longer than I've been alive. In this interview, Phil mentions that he's approaching the 52nd anniversary of learning transcendental meditation. Philip was drawn to the pragmatic mysticism of the East through thinkers like Alan Watts and Aldous Huxley, then directly from Buddhism, Taoism, Hinduism, especially Vedanta and yoga, he was led to Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who was the founder of Transcendental Meditation, and Phil spent much of the 70s teaching TM and working for the organization. He describes himself as a pragmatic mystic. Another thing that interested me about Phil's work is the way he approaches, thinks about, talks about spirituality. He says that spiritual practice not only provides relief it produces desirable qualities such as composure, compassion, alertness, and resilience. And that over time, it can create an inner fortress, a safe haven, a vantage point for heightened awareness, and a staging ground for skillful engagement. So, while spirituality can sound esoteric or off-putting for many people, I tend to think that it can be, or that it is, the foundation of living a meaningful and powerful life. It's easy to look at these heroic figures from history, like Gandhi or Mother Teresa or Martin Luther King, whose lives were founded in spirituality, who made an enormous difference to society. But as we know, there are many people who will never be known, who nevertheless lived a meaningful life of service and contribution because they were rooted in spirituality. So in this interview, we cover Phil's life journey, aspects of Phil's life journey, talk about a turning point when he was a young man, that really set him on this path. It's a great story. 
The other thing we talk about is I do ask Phil to share a bit of what he's learned from the Eastern tradition, specifically exploring, specifically exploring a concept called Chariya or the fourth mode of consciousness distinct from sleeping, waking, and dreaming. And again, this is one of those interviews where I, I really pursue my own personal curiosity. Hopefully it's also interesting and useful to you. It feels insight on this was useful to me. And then in the last part of the interview, we go pretty deep into writing and the creative process, something that Phil is undoubtedly an authority to speak on, given his experience and what he's accomplished. Phil is also the co-host of his own podcast called Spirit Matters, where over the last few years, he's conducted hundreds of interviews with spiritual teachers. You can learn more about and find Phil on the web at philipgoldberg.com. That's Philip with one L. And Phil is also the creator of something called American Vida India Tours. So if you're interested in the possibility of going to India with someone who is very well-traveled, very knowledgeable, and who's done this many times before, you might want to consider checking out his America Vida India tours. Okay. With that, big thanks to Phil for going long, going deep on this interview. I hope you enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Philip Goldberg. Phil, welcome to the School for Good Living. Good to be with you. Yeah, I'm so glad you're here. Phil, will you tell me, please, what is life about? <laughs> oh, always oh, we're starting at the top. <laughs> it was either this or your childhood, you know? Uh, okay, well, childhood is easier. <laughs> if I have to, I have to uh, get serious now, what is life about? I think life is, is about learning what life is about. I'm not sure there's a definitive answer to that. I'm happy to dwell in the mystery of it all, in the knowing that I'll never know the answer to what life is about, but that the process of learning is sufficient. And if there's an ultimate goal to life, if, if that's what the question means, if there's an ultimate purpose, the one that seems to meet my criteria for making sense <laughs> is that we are here to discover who we are and our ultimate identity and oneness with everything else. That evolutionary process from ignorance to wisdom has most to do with the question of who am I and what am I doing here? And it would seem to me that the process of overcoming the illusion that we're separate and only separate from everything else, that as Walt Whitman put it, I'm not confined between my hat and my boots. The identities of Phil and Brian that we assume and understand to be individuated personalities encased in bodies that are unique and define how other people uh, identify us and how we identify ourselves, that that's not all there is. In the Eastern, some of the interpretations of Eastern philosophy, they call that an illusion. It doesn't mean that the identity, the individuation is an illusion, it doesn't or doesn't exist. It means that it's not all that we are. 
it's not all that exists. We are also beyond that individuation and personality. We are contiguous with and at one with everything else and the ultimate identity, the ultimate essence of creation. You know, I, I appreciate that that answer, and it certainly brings a lot of thoughts and questions to my mind. And one thing that I think about, you know, I think that sounds, it sounds pretty esoteric. It sounds pretty conceptual. I think particularly for, and I believe I subscribe to that, by the way, so I'm saying it with that, but for people who are busy raising kids or earning a living, you know, trying to stay healthy, you know, that kind of thing, I wonder how we can experience that. You know, it, it sounds like the privilege of those who are maybe already to some degree well off or who have autonomy over their lives, you know, and you use this term in your book, which I, I want to ask you about in just a moment, but I want to, I want to just stay with this question about, so with what you've talked about this high level, you know, and recognizing that we're not just what occurs between our hat and our boots, how can we bring that realization into our everyday lives? Well, you know, that's what, let me back up a second. There's a lot of truth to what you say about the privilege of being able to even entertain these thoughts and ideas. Many, most of the people, most of humanity, as you say, is busy trying to survive and feeding themselves and their families and avoiding illness and death. At the same time, even the cultures we think of as undeveloped and where you would think, you know, they don't have leisure time, they don't have the resources that people like you and I might have to explore abstract ideas and engage in spiritual practices. It's not entirely true because much of what we know about spiritual experience and spiritual inquiry comes from very simple cultures, comes from people who have turned away from material life and don't have all that much comfort. They, don't ha they just also don't have the same encumbrances. And so the exploration of the divine and the sacred elements of life are built in to many simple cultures, even those that are on the brink of you know, struggling for survival all the time. And some of the great insights, some of the great revelations came from people who renounced material life and went off and lived in caves or ashrams or monasteries and communed with the divine and engaged in deep introspection and came out, came out of it. So there's something to that, but at the same time, it's not entirely a privileged position. In fact, you could say that in many cases, people who have wealth and apparently have leisure time are not necessarily engaged in these inquiries at all. So it's, it's a more nuanced picture. But to get back to your other question of how do we experience the, re the higher realities that I alluded to, that's where the repertoire, the inventory of spiritual practices that the uh, esoteric traditions of all parts of the world and all what we think of as religions, 
have come up with. This is the ultimate purpose of those. And I'm a big believer in daily, regular, what uh, in Hinduism would be called sadhana, spiritual practice. And if you explore all the religious and spiritual traditions, you'll find those kind of recommendations and those kinds of practices being at least recommended, you know, to to take on. And in our era in the West, that element of personal spiritual practice tended to lose its, people stopped paying attention to it. And as I document in American Veda, and other people have documented in covering the history of, of Buddhism in America, the advent of Eastern traditions coming to the West and bringing with them the living spiritual practices from the yoga tradition, from the Buddhist tradition, from the Taoist tradition, this has awakened in the West or reawakened in the West the importance and relevance and practical advantages of having a regular inward-turning contemplative or meditative practice of one's own. So that, that to me, is the central point. Now, the, the kind of realization we talked about before when you asked the question about what is life is all about, that's not something that you know, everybody attains in, in this life or in its ultimate form, but we get glimpses of it. We get little, little uh, you know, the light turns on, even for brief moments when we have a regular practice, if it's deep enough, and that illuminates the path onward. So we don't want to, you know, just give false impression that the meaning of life will be revealed to you as soon as you, you know, yeah. <laughs> sit down in meditation. And all your problems will go away. All your relationships yes, will yes. be fulfilling, right? No, I, I love that. And, you know, I love one of the ways you describe this in, in your book, Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times, Powerful Tools to Cultivate Calm, Clarity, and Courage, when you say, Think of spiritual discipline as a necessary preparation for vigorous action, like stretching your hamstrings before a run or scrubbing your hands before surgery, where when I look at how I used to live before I meditated, I've meditated now as we're recording this, it's in May of 2020. I started meditating in a regularly about seven years ago. And prior to that, it was one of those things for me, you know, I'd heard about, but it had no appeal. I didn't know how to do it. Didn't know why I'd want to. And now that I've incorporated it is a daily practice, both morning and night. When I reflect on why do I do this? The first and biggest answer that comes up for me is because I remember what life was like before I meditated <laughs> and I don't want to go back well, to that life. That life sucked, <laughs> you know? Yes, I understand entirely. This, as you say, is May, whatever it is. On May 24th, I will celebrate the 52nd anniversary of learning my transcendental meditation practice, which is what really set me going on, on the spiritual path. And so at the risk of giving away my age, you know, I, I learned that early on. And it meant that I made that daily practice a priority in good times and bad. But I always, I, it, I'm never far from remembering how screwed up my life was prior to that. And there's constant reinforcement 
I'm sure you will agree that there's days when you sit to meditate and you say, oh man, I don't have the time, but I'm, I'm I, you know, I know this is valuable, so I'm going to do it. And you come out of it and say, oh, I feel better. And, and even just that little, yeah, I'm more, a, a little more relaxed now. I have a little more clarity of mind. Uh, I'm a little bit more refreshed. These are practical, everyday, ordinary insights that reinforce your motivation. And, and then there's the bigger issue of like, well, when I reflect on it, yeah, my life's a whole lot better when I, because I do this. And that's what keeps us going, not I'm going to one day find out the secrets of the universe. That may be there for many of us who are seekers. One day I'll, I'll be fully awakened or enlightened or one with God or however we choose to, whatever language for these concepts we, we favor. But what really keeps us going is it has practical benefit on a daily basis. You feel better, you, you, you make better decisions, and you function better in the world. And that you, you hit on a very important factor there. There's people who say, I don't have, I don't have time for this. I'm busy. I'm, you know, I have responsibilities. Maybe one day when I'll retire, I'll take up a spiritual practice. And I always say, you know, the word spiritual throws people into thinking it's a luxury or, you know, or they don't think of themselves as necessarily spiritual. But these practices don't have to be understood in a in an esoteric or spiritual or religious context, they're very practical interventions. They have a quantifiable and measurable effect on the brain and the body and, and, and one's perception of the world and one's health. So you don't have to be thinking about it in, in any ultimate sense to realize that the spiritual is also practical and it has, it has benefits that accrue and help us manage life in, in the crazy world we live in. And as, you, you know, as time goes by, there's also what we think of as spiritual awakening that occurs. No, that, that's, that's definitely my, my experience as well. And, and as I'm listening to you as we're having this conversation, something that, that I'm reminded of is how you know, prior to having a meditative or regular spiritual practice like this, I was focused on solving problems. You know, there were the things in my life and they were wrong <laughs> and it was, it was my duty to correct them. You know, I didn't think of it in those terms exactly, but if you watched how I lived, I think that would have been easy to see. And, and of course, attachments, things I wanted that I would pursue. And now what I see, and I hear you talk about how this is very practical, opening up this space between what is and my perception and experience of what is. And again, even that, as I hear myself talking, I can hear how that could sound conceptual to someone. But what I think about when I think about why do I meditate, you know, I just think of all these things, like, I think it makes me less of an asshole. Yeah. I, I think. Well, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. And, and at least that's my experience of myself. And I hope and believe it's other people's experience of me as well. I'm less you know, I get angry more slowly. <laughs> I apologize more quickly. There are fewer instances where I think that's even called for, you know, because I don't say and do things that, that would call for that. And so that opening up that gap between, as we, you know, we talk a lot about responsiveness and reactivity, 
you know, what, what a blessing for those around us, not least of which, you know, is us and in our experience. And that's part of what I love about your book about spiritual practice for crazy times, powerful tools to cultivate calm, clarity, and courage is that you've taken a lifetime of study and, and learning and teaching, and you've put it into about 200 pages and shared. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I, it was hard to keep it to that. I'll bet it was. Yeah. I'll, I'll bet it was because you know, as you mentioned, your the anniversary of when you learned TM. You've been you know on this path longer than I've been alive. Don't remind me. <laughs> well, that's part of what I found so valuable yeah. was to hear from somebody who has this devotion and this experience, just speaking very plainly. You know, it's not, and and it is like you talked about. It's not just for people who have a religious orientation or who are totally, but you, it's it's pretty all welcoming, all encompassing. But let me ask you this, who did you write it for and what did you want it to do for them? Well, interestingly enough, we're, we're recording this in the middle of the pandemic crisis in May of 2020. I wrote the book, obviously, long before anybody imagined there would be a pandemic crisis. It takes time to write a book and then there's the whole editing and, you know, all the, the things that have to be done before a book is actually in anybody's hands. And so the original impetus for it, actually, it, it, it comes back to what we were just talking about. A little over a year ago, early in 2019, I ran into people who would say things like, I'm so riled up, things are so crazy now, speaking primarily of the political landscape since 2016, but also just life becoming more and more challenging in many ways. But life in American culture started to feel more difficult to comprehend and, and to deal with on an everyday basis. There was a lot of anxiety, a lot of anger, a lot of confusion, a lot of agitation and rage. And people were saying things to me like, well, I'm, I'm too agitated to, to do my spiritual practice. I, I, I can't do yoga. I can't meditate. I don't pray anymore, whatever it is that they were accustomed to. And other people were saying, things are so challenging now. I, I have to be more engaged. I have to do something. I have to get politically active. I have to be more involved in my community or my kids' education or whatever it is that made them feel a pull toward some kind of activism. And so therefore, they didn't have time for their spiritual practice. And I found both of those kinds of people to be misguided. And so I wrote a, an essay. It was something like, Why Spiritual Practice is Important in Crazy Times. And I made the case, as you were saying before, that it's when things are crazy, one, on the one hand, we need the refuge and the sanctuary and the peace of the time engaged in spiritual practice just for self-protection. And at the same time, what's also true is spiritual practice creates a good foundation for more effective action in the world. It's not an escape, you know, it's not, it's a temporary tuning out so that you can return to the world after your 20 minutes or your hour or whatever you spend on it, better equipped to act in a, a, a wise, creative, 
compassionate way to make a contribution to your world or the larger world. And so I wrote this essay, and I was in touch with my editors from my previous book, which was a biography of Yogananda. And I said, I don't want to do a long research project. (laughs) I want to do a, a shorter book and a practical book. And I just wrote this essay, maybe there's a book in it, and that's how it happened. And so the idea was to help people who were having difficulties coping with the craziness of the world. And the world can be crazy any time for any of us, but especially at times when there's social upheaval and, and change, that makes life more even more disorienting and harder to cope with. And and then in the you know, the book is scheduled for publication in August of this year, 2020. And then suddenly the pandemic hit and social distancing and sheltering in place and a a new level of fear and anxiety and despair entered into the public arena. And so the reason you were able to read the book three, four months before publication is my publisher, Hay House, and I decided the book had a lot to offer now in the midst of this crisis, and you couldn't rush the print version out, but we could get the electronic, the digital version, the ebook out. And so they brought it out and, and priced it at a, a $1.99 so it, more people could benefit from it. And that's, that's the story of the book. And so you asked who I was aiming for. I was aiming it at anybody who's having difficulty coping with the times we live in and who can benefit from the practices that I include in the book. And so that means pretty much anybody. And But I, I'm aware of the fact that by calling them spiritual practices, only you know certain people will be drawn to it. And that's fine. I draw from all the different spiritual traditions. So I think you know, I benefited. I mean, this is all my material, but I actually you know, did a little more research and I found some practices and methods that I had not been familiar with before. And just doing uh, the research for the book has helped me. Yeah, that's great. That's one thing I love about pursuing any outcome is not just the result we produce, but what we experience and what we become in the process. Yes. That's really beautiful. And and back to what you said about spirituality, you know, this is I won't say it's a mission of mine, but it's something I feel called to in some way, which is making the spiritual practical. You know, exactly what you're doing. And 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 I love also how you describe this in the book when you talk about the the fact that Findings clearly show that techniques traditionally considered quote unquote spiritual sharpen the mind, calm the body, open the heart to positive emotions such as compassion, empathy, love, heal the ravages of accumulated stress, and in general, nudge behavior patterns in the directions we regard as desirable. Yes. Well said. <laughs> and I hear that. Yeah. A wise man once said, and I hear that. And I think who in that definition wouldn't want to pursue a spiritual path? Yes. And you know what? The fact is, if you know, for some people who are you know determinedly secular in their orientation, they might be put off by the word spiritual, and that's fine. Don't think of them in that term. Think of them as psychophysiological practices that you know have a benefit to your life. Think of them as just self-improvement 
practices. And that, that, would, that would be perfectly fine. You know, Kaiser Permanente is my healthcare provider. And even before the pandemic crisis, I would, you know, for the last couple of years, I, 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 I get mailings and, and it says things like, it recommends that, you know, lets me know they have yoga classes. And, uh, you know, that meditation, daily meditation is very good for the immune system and stress reduction. And, you know, here's some guidelines. And I thought, you know, maybe I'm getting old, but this didn't always happen. You know, back in 1968, and actually, you know, in the early 70s when I was teaching uh, meditation, and the first early studies on the physio- physiological benefits of, of engaging in meditation started to come out. It was a revelation that people said, oh my God, these things that we thought, these practices that we thought were only for weirdos and hippies and, and you know, esoteric artists and avant-garde people, mystics in caves, you mean they actually do something that you can measure and that, you know, I can do this and my high blood pressure might be reduced or my anxiety or, you know, whatever troubled them? Yes. And that's what the results, you know, kept finding over the course of decades. There's now thousands of studies demonstrating this. So medical healthcare people and psychotherapists and social workers and people like that who are engaged in just everyday wellness and good health and mental well-being, they started to incorporate these practices in a secular context. And that's a big story of the last few decades. So the passage you read is one you know, that just holds up. You'll see it in magazines, you know, the same kind of, you know, the same kind of ideas. I once heard, I don't know if this was Pema Chodron, I'm sure many people have said a similar thing about we wake up whenever we wake up, right? Whether that's societally or as individuals, yeah, that we all have these moments where either the pain or the suffering in our lives is so great, we resolve to make a change or we see someone who inspires us and or have some kind of experience. And I, I loved reading about your experience in the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. <laughs> I wonder if you'd be willing to share that with me now. Well, the prelude to it is I had been, you know, searching for, you know, truth and wisdom and how to live life and how to be happy and all this. It was the 60s. And as as part of the, the the cultural atmosphere of my generation, there was a lot of seeking going on, a lot of searching for answers. Well, and, and Phil, I understand as well that you were raised by a couple of atheists. Oh yeah, definitely. They were my father might have called himself agnostic, but my mother was an out and out atheist. And, you know, political lefties who, you know, for them, religion was the opium of the people, as Marx put it. And and so I had no religious upbringing whatsoever. In fact, I don't even say it was non-religious. It was anti-religious. And, and so when I was a college student, I was that way myself. And I was politically active and involved in the anti-war movement and civil rights and all those hallmarks of the 60s. But at the same time, for many of us, 
it was a time of trying to figure out what life was all about. And, and the customary answers we were given just didn't hold up. And there was, there was too much unhappiness. And the search for happiness in all the wrong places, careerism and money and all that, just it, it, we, we knew there was more to life. And we started searching for it. And in that context, um, I moved from New York to Boston. And I met somebody, and, and she said, as a part of a conversation, she said, go, you should go to the Museum of Fine Arts. They have a room called the Temple Room, and you should you know, see the Buddhist statues. And I had, never, I had never dwelled in Buddhist imagery or Eastern imagery at all at that time. I had read some stuff. I had read about Zen. I had read about Vedanta philosophy and yoga, and I was in moving in that direction. But I went to the museum, to the temple room. The room was locked to the public because somebody had committed ritual suicide in, in the temple room. And so as a preventive, you had to say you were a student or a scholar, and then they let you in. So I was a student at the time. They let me in. So the good news about that was I was alone in the temple room. So it really did feel like a temple. And my experience was, as I slowly walked, it's this beautifully laid out room with statues, you know, from antiquity, mostly, of Buddhas. And there was something about looking at their faces. And, you know, anybody could do this. You know, people listening to this can, you know, Google Buddhist statues and just look at them online. But there, you know, in, in their original form in stone in this beautiful setting, looking at the faces, looking at their expressions and the eyes, because they radiated a kind of tranquility and imperturbability, equanimity, and yet alert and, and wise. And I had the thought, and I'll never forget it, it's whatever those guys had, I want it. Whatever went into the, you know, looking that way, <laughs> it was obviously reflective of an inner state of, of being that was highly desirable. It was a big moment in, in launching me onto a spiritual path that had already begun, but sort of solidified. It gave me something, so to speak, concrete to hold on to. It was like a, a vision, because I'd never met, uh, you know, at that time, a yogi or a Buddhist monk or anything like that. So this was, this was the equivalent of it. Thanks, thanks for singling that out. No, that, that's such a wonderful story. And I am touched as well that the artist captured that in yes. the stone. You know, yes. it's really ma magnificent. And, and also what I'm curious is, so back then, and in, in, did you say, were you in your twenties? Yes. When you had the, early experience? Uh -huh. So whatever they had, you wanted, have you gotten it? <laughs> Check in with me at certain times. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. I would say this. I have gotten it more than I realized I could over the years. And I, there are times when I feel much closer to what those people had than at other times. Have I achieved Buddhahood or the, 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 you know, the status of uh, the bodhisattvas that were being depicted? Certainly not. But 
yes, glimpses of it, tastes of it, movement in that direction, absolutely. Otherwise, I would not be writing about it. I would not be advocating it, you know, these things for other people. I could not speak authoritatively or confidently about it. And I, I wouldn't keep doing these kind of practices. So obviously, yes, there's been considerable movement. And, and, and at the same time, you know, there's times when I think, oh, my God, haven't I come anywhere? Look what just happened. I just got pissed off at my wife, you know, blah, blah, blah. I should be beyond all that. Mm, I'm still human. And, you know, it's entirely possible that the figures either imagined or depicted by the, the, the Buddhist artists, you know, when they weren't posing for the sculpture <laughs> or, or when no one was around, it's entirely possible, you know. And, you know, you, you, you see pictures of yogis in perfect equanimity and you see the descriptions of them. And you think, yeah, these, maybe these guys living in caves had this level of complete imperturbability. On the other hand, maybe, you know, the monk in the next cave got irritating, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so who knows? But I will say this, I will say this. I, I mean, we're joking, but we make progress in these ways. And as you've already noticed uh, and mentioned when you, when you were talking about your own experience with meditation, we mark moments when we say, oh, you know what? I just got angry. I thought I was over that. I guess I'm still human. But you had that thought, and you probably got over the anger and returned to some level of equanimity and balance much faster than you would have in the past. And that's, there's a, there's a passage in the Bhagavad Gita that appealed to me very early on. It's very similar to what I saw in the faces of those Buddhas. It says that the advanced yogi has equanimity in loss and gain, in defeat and victory, in pleasure and pain. And I thought, oh yeah, I want that. And there's times when I felt I had it. And then other times when it's obviously I have a long way to go. But one thing that does happen is, and you said it before, it happens less often. It happens, it happens to a lesser degree of intensity and you recover more quickly. And that experience that many of us have has been borne out in scientific research. That's one of the consistent findings in the research on different meditation practices. That, and that, so that promise is there. And we can joke that, you know, people who seem to be imperturbable might have a temper tantrum or get upset by something. And I've seen it. I've seen it with yogis and swamis. But, the, but then they start laughing about it. Or, you know, they, or you realize that they, they did it for purpose. They got angry at something, and there was a purpose to that indignation, a lesson to be taught. And so we, we don't want to deny our humanity and, you know, the emotional content of, of ordinary life, especially, you know, 99% of us are not monks and nuns. So we have to deal with families, neighbors, and bosses, and coworkers, and all the stuff that makes our lives complicated. And, and we're human. So we, all this talk about the aspirations of spiritual practices doesn't mean 
you know, we have some level of imagined perfection that denies our humanity. The humanity part is a beautiful aspect of it. And so let's honor it as well. I think that's a really wonderful view and one that I think it's pretty, is both wise and compassionate, you know, recognizing that there is, you know, there are at least two parts of us, you know, the human and the divine or whatever we might call it, the the little self, capital, and then the big self, the capital S self. Yes. One thing that I wonder, like, I'd love to get your, your view about, you know, you talk about this term, I'd heard it in my study, but I hadn't noticed it about, I think it's pronounced Turiya. The fourth, Turiya, Turiya, right? And about these states that we live of sleeping, waking, and is it dreaming? Yes. Sleeping and waking? Are those the three? Yes. Okay. So will you talk for a moment, what is Turiya? Okay. This is an old concept from the yoga tradition. Turiya, T-U-R-I-Y-A, is Sanskrit for fourth, the number four, the fourth. The traditional way of looking at it, and this too has now achieved a certain level of scientific credibility because you can you can measure these things and you can investigate these things with the sophisticated brain imagery that we now have. But the notion is that we have ordinarily three ordinary states of consciousness that we're familiar with. We're awake, or we're asleep, or we're dreaming. The sleep state being one where we're not aware of anything, the deep sleep state. Dreaming being we're aware, but what we're aware of is illusory. And waking, which is our ordinary waking state where our senses are experiencing, the mind is thinking, and all the, the apparatus is engaged in being awake. We're aware of sensory objects and experiences. The fourth state of consciousness, what's called Turiya, is a state of being awake, but without objects of of experience. So if you can imagine, for example, being in a a state of meditation, you, you sit, your eyes are closed, and the thoughts and sensations that the mind is usually aware of, start to subside, and then cease. In the Yoga Sutras, or text of yogic philosophy, yoga is defined not as something you practice, but it's also that. But the state of yoga, the state of union, that is the definition of yoga, is defined as the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind. Sounds pretty good. That state is called Turiya. So it's think of it as just you're awake inside, but the mind is quiet, mind is silent. Ordinarily, when we're experiencing, they, they talk about there being three aspects of it. One is the experiencer, that's you know, you and me, and the process of experiencing, and the object of experience. The object being the screen you're looking at, what your 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 sense of touch is picking up, what you're hearing, what you're thinking. Thoughts are an object of experience. So in this state of Turiya, there's no object of experience. It's just the experiencer alone with him or herself or itself. 
And that has also been called pure consciousness, not consciousness of something, but just consciousness by itself alone. So that's Turiya. And in deep experiences of meditation, people at the very least will have glimpses of this. And you can measure that moment of that, uh, you know, with brain imagery. Yeah. Thank you for, for sharing that. And I thought it was, I thought that was really interesting to read, to read about in your book. And part of why I ask, you know, following from what we've talked about, about taking some of these concepts and making them practical or making them accessible, you know, first of all, understanding that what, that they even exist, you know, why we might care, how we can get there. I have a daily discipline where every night before bed, I'll record. And of course it's totally subjective. I don't have any sophisticated method of attempting to quantify this, but, but what I'll say is how much of the day did I live with the, I am awareness, you know, as best I can from the perspective of the observer or the witness. And I tried to just record as a percentage, what was that percentage? And most days it's, you know, in the teens at best, like 15, 20%. But as I look at my experience waking, you know, in those three states, sleeping, waking, dreaming, what I realize is that what I'm not counting is anytime I get in a flow state, you know, and when you talk about Turiya here, and when you talk about there's no object of experience, there's just pure consciousness. What I wonder is, is the flow state part of that? Is it, dis- is it different from that? That's a really interesting question, you know, because we, the flow state has been defined in, in certain terms. And I think, you know, we, it's not always clear when we're in it or we're not in it. But what you're describing sounds to me like, let's take it a step further. That what we talked about with Turiya is something people experience typically in a deep meditation, either in hazy glimpses and sometimes with clarity. Sometimes it's an extended form. So when you come out and start when you think, you think, oh, yes, I, I had just had that experience of transcending all thought, and that's, it was just pure consciousness. There's also the experience of what you were describing as witnessing, where that aspect of yourself, that pure consciousness, that is the self with a capital S, your essence, your core identity, that's beyond personality and ego and thought, is awake inside and observing, witnessing the part of you that thinks and feels and talks (laughs) and moves about in space and does stuff. That's the experience of witnessing. It's like carrying Turiya into the world of engagement and activity of the other person. There's this image in the Upanishads, a beautiful extended metaphor. I'll have to paraphrase. But there's two birds dwelling in the the same tree. Like those two birds, we have two aspects of ourselves dwelling in the same body. One of the birds is busy doing stuff, getting food, you know, doing all that. The other bird just silently watches the active bird. Like that, one part of us is silent and eternal and unchanging and beyond ordinary changes of life. 
The other aspect of ourselves, the part we're usually identifying with and, you know, living through, is doing stuff. And if we are awaking to the, the fullness of reality, both of those are present and the witness is <laughs> witnessing the small self doing stuff. That could be characteristic of being in the flow. On the other hand, maybe it's not witnessing, it's just you're so absorbed in the activity that you don't think about yourself, you don't think about outcomes, you don't think about what's going to happen, you don't think about how you look or what you are, you know, you're just completely absorbed in the action. And that's another kind of desirable state, but not one you can force. You can't say, now I'm going to be in the flow. And, you know, you hear athletes and musicians talking about this, people in the creative process, even me, you know, as a writer, I deal in words. So I have to be, my mind has to be engaged. But then there's times when it feels like I'm, it's automatic. And it's like, what was going on there? And so you'll see that. But, you know, Michael Jordan didn't say, now the game's about to begin. I'll turn on that button and I'll be in the flow. No, it just happens or it doesn't happen. But you can improve your odds of having these kind of experiences we're talking about. And that's where spiritual practice comes in again. Someone once said, uh, it was a Zen teacher, that enlightenment is an accident and meditation makes you accident prone. So you, and and in the in the Western traditions, we talk about grace. That you know, grace just happens, and and in some cases, some theologies, God grants grace, but it, it, it's a divine moment that you can't force or predict. It either happens or it doesn't. And but you can. The sage Sri Ramakrishna said, "Grace is like the wind. You can't control it. You can't predict it, but you can set your sails." so that if the wind comes, you're ready for it, you catch it. And, and that's what spiritual practice and your own, what you described as your form of introspection at the end of the day, that in itself is a kind of spiritual practice. And, and because it, it's setting an intention, it's setting an aspiration. And I don't know that just doing that will, you know, increase the odds of being, you know, those moments happening, but probably does along with your meditation and everything else. But I would want, the one caution I would have is to say, while these states are desirable, you don't want to get into, make the mistake of thinking you can coerce them into being, or, you know, force them or, you know, make them happen. You just have to, you have to live your life and, you know, on a subtle level, the intention may, is there, the practices cultivate the, the habit of them happening. But it would, be, it would be a mistake to say, oh, I didn't score as high today as I did yesterday, so I must have done something wrong. Now, yeah, or, or I've got to double my efforts tomorrow. Right? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. that'll work against you. Absolutely. And, and, and that's really, for me, where this, this line of inquiry is going as well is this amazing, I think really amazing opportunity we have, or maybe the challenge of living life in a way where we're trying versus allowing. 
Yes. You know, where we get out of the way and let whatever is bigger than us move and work through us, you know, and, and stop resisting and, and, and all this. And I wondered if you'd tell me how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, here's the thing. These things are more nuanced than people realize. And, and maybe that's one of the advantages of being on the path for so long. You're, you learn things just from experience and you learn how that things are more complicated and nuanced and therefore more mysterious and in many ways more interesting and more fun than you realize. For example, let me I'll talk about that business of being having equanimity and loss and gain and victory and defeat and all that. I wanted that so badly. And I would look at myself, oh, I'd have to, now I have equanimity. Now I don't have, you know, it's like, and um, I had better meditate more today because, you know. And I realized after years and years that on some deep level, I mean, the passage said, you know, equanimity and loss and gain, victory and defeat, pleasure and pain. It didn't say there won't be pain. It didn't say there won't be defeat. It didn't say there won't be uh, what's the, whatever the third one was. And it, subconsciously, I expected that. Oh, there will come a time when I won't have any defeats. There won't be any pain in life. There won't be any loss. No, that happens when you die. When you're alive, there's always going to be ups and downs and, 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 and things are going to change and people are going to disappoint you and people are going to die and blah, blah, blah. On some level, I expected that. No, it said you'll have more equanimity when these things happen because you're a human being and you'll live. And it's very similar with some of the other things like letting go and you know all that and letting the divine work through me. It's more nuanced than that. You're still a human being. So yes, you can let let go and let God, as they say. But at the same time, you got to do stuff and you got to make decisions and you got to push the buttons and you got to, you know, drive the car and you got to pay your taxes and you got to do all this stuff. And you say, well, I, I want to just let the divine work through me. But that doesn't mean you're not also doing what you have to do. That's how the divine works through you. So it's not a it's not a mood. It's not a it's not a okay. I'm going to stop doing stuff and let the divine work through me. What it could mean is I'm going to stop obsessing. I'm going to stop trying to know what can't be known. I'm going to stop trying to end the uncertainty because uncertainty is part of this situation and this this life. I'm going to turn within. I'm going to stop the incessant activity. I'm going to have some silence and open up so that higher intelligence might start to operate. I'm going to get out of the way a little bit and then see what happens. But it doesn't mean something else takes over. It means that now the, the usual functions of mind and body and emotions are being en enjoined by something higher than your usual ego-driven, limited intelligence and limited awareness. You're, you're bringing in another element. And that comes from regular practice and from habit. And the remembering, as you, as you suggested, remembering, you know what? Let me just pull back here. 
Let me just be patient. Let me open up. And whether you do that through prayer or just, you know, a walk in the woods or meditation or whatever method you have for just quieting the mind, disengaging, and making room for the divine to enter, it's always there. But, you know, you, you need to sort of open the shades and let the sunshine in. And, and, and that, that's, you know, what we have to get in the habit of doing. Well, I, I really like the way that, that you talk about that. And in the book, too, I love how you put together what you just shared about, you know, this thing of let go, let God. Yeah, that and, as they say in yeah. Islam, trust Allah, but yeah. tie your camel to tie the post. Tie your camel to the post. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. We have to, you know, we're, we're humans and, and we have to do human things. I mean, when I think of the, the great exemplars, the great spiritual role models, I have my favorites. And, you know, they, I mean, the Buddha is one, and, and you know, obviously, and the, the great yogis and the saints of the Western traditions. But the, then there's also the, the exemplars who are deeply spiritual, but also very engaged in the world. Now, we should say, you know, people like Buddha and, and some of the great sages of the yoga tradition and the saints of Christianity, like the, you know, John the Divine and some of the others, they were engaged in the world. They taught, they led people in a spiritual direction. But then there's the people who are active in a different way in worldly affairs, like Gandhi and Nelson Mandela, and, and Martin Luther King, and of course, Jesus. These were people seriously involved in the world, and yet not of the world, deeply spiritual people. They are also role models of acting in a purposeful way by putting themselves in a position to, to have that let go, let God manifest in their actions. So it's not that they weren't doing anything. It's that they were guided by that. And, you know, their, their sails were catching the wind of, of, the, of the divine intelligence. And, and yet they, they had to make decisions and they had to do stuff and they had to, you know, work with people who were not quite so, didn't have the level of integrity they may have or wanted to. So, you know, there are role models for us that if we can sort of emulate, it works to our advantage. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And thanks for for indulging my own personal curiosity there, you know, specific. I hope it's useful to people listening. I know, you know, we're all on a spiritual journey, whether we whether it occurs to us that way or not. Quite right. That thing about, you know, that, that story of we're each touching the elephant, <laughs> our own part. That's right. right. And yes. what are we experiencing and then sharing with others. So I, I, I really get a lot of value from it. And, and, I, and again, I hope those listening do. Okay. So with your permission, let's transition to the enlightening lightning round. As you wish. Okay. Thank you. So again, this is a series of brief questions. You're welcome to answer as long as you'd like, but for the most part, I'm going to ask the question and just step aside. I'll try not to be too long-winded. Whatever you answer with is great. Okay. Question number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. <laughs> Life is like a 
carnival. Okay. Number two, borrowing Peter Thiel's famous question, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? Hmm. Well, the people I hang out with tend to agree with me. Out in the world, people tend not to agree with me that there is a non-physical, spiritual dimension of reality that is experienceable and real. Okay. Thank you. Number three, if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? <laughs> I think I have one. Actually, I mentioned this in, in Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times. I have a t-shirt that says, meditation, it's not what you think. Love that. I love that. And you, and you say you actually do have that shirt? Yeah, so it was a gift. I didn't make it up. Yes. That's right. You talk about you wore it the morning you went to write the chapter That's on right. meditation, right? And it was totally synchronous? Absolutely beautiful synchronicity. That's awesome. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Number four. On that topic, by the way, I'm reminded of that. The two Buddhists who were meditating and one turns to the other and says, are you not thinking what I'm not thinking? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Or I, we could go with make we make me one with everything. <laughs> True change comes from within. Yeah. Okay. Question number four. What book other than one of your own have you gifted or recommended most often? There are two. I have one translation or another of the Bhagavad Gita and uh, Autobiography of a Yogi. Mm, yeah. Autobiography of a Yogi is the book that inspired me to to begin meditating and I saw that you recently published a book about Yogananda. Yes. I know we could do a whole interview on that. But yes, we could. It's called The Life of Yogananda, and it, it adds a lot to what he covered in his own autobiography. Or I should say, I fill in gaps that he, let, he chose to leave out of his own story. That's awesome. Man, I'm so curious too. And I know we won't get into all this, but I'd love to know more about the SRF and other organizations and who is following the true lineage and, and also why you wrote it. Maybe, maybe if you're willing that you'd at least maybe off the air, <laughs> yeah, off the air, but, but maybe at least touching on this. Oh, sure. I'd be happy on, to. on why did you write this book? Why did you devote so much of your life to this? And what, if anything really stands out, like what surprised you? What did you learn as a result of writing this one? You mean the life of Yogananda? Yeah, yeah, yeah. After I wrote American Veda, there's a chapter on Yogananda in there, and I, in researching it, I came to realize what an interesting life he had on the human level. And, uh, of course, I couldn't write it all in one little chapter. So afterward, I explored a little bit, and I, f I found his human story, the, the arc of his narrative, very compelling. And I realized how much he left out of Autobiography of a Yogi. There was just so much unsaid especially about his life after he comes to America, which was most of his adult life. And so I decided it would be a useful addition to spiritual literature and a great adventure for me to delve into it and, and tell the story. And, and a few things stood out. He was a great, innovative, and influential spiritual teacher. He was also a very interesting human being. He was a monk, 
you know, he didn't have a family or anything, but he worked really hard. He worked as much as any CEO or entrepreneur would. And he, he was torn a lot between his renunciation and wanting to just sit in meditation by the Ganges and his responsibilities to fulfill his mission in the world and the difficulties and challenges of dealing with people and and coming to America as a stranger in a strange land and being here through the Roaring Twenties, through the Great Depression, through World War II and its aftermath, and having to deal with paying the bills and people opposing him and enemies and, you know, it, it, it was a, a challenging life and realizing the extent of that and the grace with which he dealt with it was important. And the other thing was he was very aware of worldly conditions. He was very aware of that this is all, all the stuff of the world is in many ways illusory and insignificant. And he was always pointing himself and others toward the eternal realities of the divine existence. But he still was involved in the world, and he spoke out against injustices and bigotries and greed and all the other ills of the era that he lived, the era that he lived through. And that kind of thing stood out. Yeah. Really remarkable human being. And he bought some pretty, uh, he, he, he had some great view for real estate in California, didn't he? I always say he had the best real estate karma of all the gurus who came here. The most beautiful settings and and he and his followers do a very good job of maintaining the uh, beauty of the landscapes yeah amazing okay thank you for that and and on the topic of books what are you currently reading reading yeah not <laughs> <laughs> only enough i have been reading things related to my work so i've been reading various you know spiritual uh, things and just a variety of things I am actually catching up to my New Yorker magazine subscription. And just yesterday, posted on Facebook because I saw an interview with him. And I said, you know, Stephen King has written like a thousand books. He's a household word. I've never read any of his stuff. And so I posted on Facebook saying, if I have to read one Stephen King novel, which should it be? So I'm about to embark on my. Stephen King adventure. <laughs> oh, that's great. You know, if I were to, and because you asked, <laughs> I know you said novel, but man, if I were to read only one Stephen King book, it would be on writing. I know, but I, I specifically want to sample this fiction. Yeah. 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 I can't, I, I guess I can believe you've never read a Stephen King book, but have you decided which one you're going to read? No, not yet, but it can't be one of the movies that I've seen based on his book. So. Okay. And, it can, and it can't be more than 400 pages. So I'm... Uh, well, that's like two thirds of them right there. Okay. Oh, well, <laughs> think, you yeah. know, there's a lot to choose. Yeah, right on. What motivates you to pick up one of his at this time? I just, I love good writing. I love good, compelling writing. And my, I read so much. I write so much. I read my own writing. And every once in a while, I just want to read a good yarn and be caught. And, you know, there's many greater novelists than Stephen King, but there's very few better storytellers. And every once in a while, you just want to put yourself in the hands of a great storyteller and just 
I read it just, for, it, you could say it's escapism, but it's good escapism to be caught up in storytelling. But I also learn a lot as a writer from reading the great writers. It's a choice at the moment, frankly, because I said, you know, I want to read a novel. And I looked at my shelves and I said, where are there's a lot of unread novels here. And I have had James Joyce's Ulysses on my bookshelves for many decades, for decades. And I still haven't cracked it open. And I thought, okay, maybe I'll read that. Maybe I'll read Tolstoy. And then I saw Stephen King interviewed on television. I said, you know, in many ways, he's an American Tolstoy, you know, in a, in a, or Edgar Allan Poe kind of guy. I, so so I, I went from the sublime to Stephen King. And I'll, I'll read it. I'll do both this summer. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Thank you for that. Okay. Question number five. So in your life, you've traveled a ton, obviously, and you lead tours. What's a travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? My Kindle. So, I mean, that to me is a great adventure. I still love reading books that I could feel the paper. But when I travel, I have this one device that has, you know, tons of books and articles and stuff. That, and when I take my tours to India, believe it or not, even before the pandemic, a face mask and hand sanitizer <laughs> just to keep healthy. And really to me, when I travel, especially when I lead tours and when I lead tours in India, I have a lot of responsibility. It's not, you know, it's, it, I prefer being just alone and exploring a place I've never been. But when I lead tours, I have responsibility for 15, 20, whatever number of people. And so I have to, the main thing I have to bring with me is, a commitment to dealing with the uncertainties and craziness of travel with a certain amount of equanimity and awareness because you know that that especially in a place like india the unexpected is expected and you have to be open to it all yeah that's awesome thank you okay question number six What's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Ah, good question. I, a, a while ago, stopped eating so much carbs, stopped keeping desserts in my house. So if I ever have desserts, it's because I'm visiting someone or at a party. So I, I, I try to be healthy. Thanks to my wife, we tend to have mostly organic, good, healthy food. I also started taking a number of supplements. My wife is a doctor of Chinese medicine, so I, I take certain herbal supplements. I started doing that. And I, well, I can't say I started making sure I do exercise and stretching every day because that started a long time ago. Yeah, because now I'm at an age where aging is real. And, I, <laughs> and now we are in the pandemic. And I'm in the high-risk category because of just my, my age. And even though I don't, you know, I, I have no health problems. So I, I'm aware of it. Ah, I'm going to say something else that's more important. One of the things I have come to take on, especially with the publication of this new book, is I realize it's time to accept my status as an elder, that even though you know I, I'm, I'm very youthful and all that, 
and I, I have no intention of not working. I have learned a lot. And I had been engaged in a kind of false humility because I know how much I don't know. And I, don't, I, I never wanted to come across as, you know, some, somebody who's holding himself up as some kind of guru or, or wise man. But at the same time, I have learned a lot in these decades of life. And when, especially when I get to speak to younger people, like college students or people in yoga teacher training programs or something, I realize I've, I've got a lot to offer and it would be irresponsible not to offer it. So somehow I'm trying to balance the acceptance of that role with the proper humility. And that's a, a relatively new thing that I've taken on. That sounds like a significant shift. Mm. That's great. Tune in in a, a year or so. Let me know how I've done. Right on. Okay. <laughs> will do. Number seven, what's one thing you wish every American knew? That we are deeply, inextricably connected to the rest of the planet. And we cannot ignore other countries, especially those we can learn from because our actions affect them and they affect us. And above all, we have to snap out of our complacency about climate change and what we've done and continue to do to the environment. Yeah, me too. And at the moment, I would like them to snap out of uh, a few decades of thinking that government doesn't have any role in our lives and realize that freedom is great and but that there's a role for governance and good, intelligent leadership from government, especially at times of crisis. Yeah, for sure. Question number eight, what have you learned? What, what's maybe the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work? <laughs> Honey, I'm ca calling my wife to see if she'll... <laughs> she'll give us the answer. <laughs> Okay, it's funny you should say making relationships work because the joke is relationships take work, and, yeah. and, and they do. And that's seriously an important lesson. I mean, I was very naive early on and very much a romantic and didn't realize that you know, uh, long-term commitments and are things that require effort and attention and cultivation. And somebody once told me, and when I remember it, it really helps. And that is when you're doing whatever you're doing, if you can stop for a moment and ask yourself, am I coming from love? It helps. Because we, we, we get selfish, we get vindictive, we try, you know, we want to be right, we find fault. But if we're coming from love, all of our human frailties and all of our flaws and all the frailties and flaws of our the people we have relationships with, especially our spouses and our family members. <laughs> if we're coming from love, then everything is okay. Then, then you can forgive, then you can apologize, then you can admit you were wrong, then you can be generous. And, and so there's nothing more important than coming from... Oh, I'll tell you one other thing. I learned this Early on, after my divorce, and then when I was with the woman I, who's now my wife, I realized that loving is more important than being loved. And that was, that was a revelation, and I've tried to always remember that. 
don't always succeed, but I try. Thank you. Okay. And uh, the last question here is about money. So aside from compound interest, are you giving me some, (laughs) right? What's that saying? I've taken a vow of poverty to test me, (laughs) send money. (laughs) So aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money? Buy, buy low, sell high. Yeah. Stack it deep and sell it cheap. Yeah. Or what's something that you're sure to always do with money or you never do with it? Buy low, sell high is pretty good though. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I wish I'd learned that. To be honest, I was never very good at it. And I, especially, you know, the part of me that wanted to be a professional writer and earn my living as an independent person who deals in words, either on the written page or the spoken word. And in my youthful idealism and arrogance, I thought money doesn't matter, blah, blah, blah. Well, I wish I had learned much earlier that it does matter and that attending to it and making wise decisions about it does allow you to be free. I was right that you know money shouldn't be an obsession and more isn't always better and all that, and, and that you don't want to compromise the integrity of your life and your, pers- your individuality in order to make money. But that sometimes you have to make concessions to the realities of paying the bills. I wish I had paid more attention to that early on and made some wiser decisions about saving money, earning money, and so forth. That being said, I'm very grateful that somehow early on when I was very young, I I saw that making money wasn't all it's cracked up to be. And I still know that. And I still realize that. At the same time, you have to chop wood and carry water, as the Zen masters say. And if you ignore those things, if you ignore making money and saving money and using your money intelligently, then you don't have any water to carry or or wood to chop. And so you have to find the proper balance for yourself. Thank you for that. Well, speaking of money, one thing I have done is I've made a $100 microloan on your behalf through Kiva.org to a woman named Jacqueline, who's 37 years old. She lives in Kenya. She's going to use this money to buy fruits and vegetables for her grocery store so that she can make a little money for to support herself and her family and improve the quality of life in her community. So thank you for giving me a reason to do that. Oh, thank you for doing that. I'm a big believer in that those microloan programs. I'm involved with one in India, and they do tremendous good in the world. And I have to say, you know, for those listening, $100 does an awful lot in some of those places. Yeah, it's amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm touched every time I fill my tank with gas or I eat out. That That's a meaningful difference for these entrepreneurs in these countries around oh, the world. Oh, my God, yes. I mean, I've, I've traveled to India a lot, as you said, and there's times when I realize I just bargained with a merchant because that's what you do in India. And I got him down from these number of rupees to these rupees. And then I realized I just saved about 40 cents and, <laughs> and this guy can feed his family for that. And that, you know, so really I'm glad I'm delighted to hear you've done that. Yeah. No, thank you. Thank you. Okay. And so the last part of the interview here, I have a few questions for you about writing and the creative process, and maybe one or two about marketing and promotion. Before we go to that, let me just ask you here, if people want to learn more from you, 
if they want to connect with you. We haven't talked about your Spirit Matters podcast, which people can listen to some amazing interviews. They can learn more about your tours. What would you have people do if they want to learn more from you or connect with you? Well, the, the easiest and best thing is my website, philipgoldberg.com, Philip with one L, because everything is there. You know, my books, the Spirit Matters podcast, will be a link to that, tours, my speaking videos, everything is there. The Spirit Matters podcast, thanks for mentioning it, is at spiritmatterstalk.com. And uh, your listeners will find probably more than 250 interviews now archived. And we have managed over the last few years to interview some very wise people, some of whom are famous and sort of household words, and others who should be famous because they, they're brilliant and they have a lot to offer. So there's, and, and it covers the full you know, spectrum of spiritual teachers, writers, authors, scholars, and so forth. So I would recommend it, and I do it, my co-host and I do it, we don't make any money. We've never been able to monetize it, <laughs> speaking of money, but it's our service. And, and it's, I think people learn a lot, will learn a lot if they, they go there. Yeah, that's awesome. And, you've been, and as you said, you've been doing it for years. Yeah, it's been three or four years now. That's great. Thank you for that. Okay, fantastic. And congratulations. You survived the enlightening lightning round. <laughs> You're doing great. <laughs> that was, those were good questions. I may have to steal some for Spirit Matters. No, that's it's one of my favorite parts, and many listeners say that as well. Just you know, people who have learned so much in their own way and what they have to share when it's not directly related to their work. Yeah, some of the questions were quite surprising. Yeah, so thanks. Okay, so the last part here is, as I mentioned, about writing and creativity, marketing and promotion. Oh, some of my now you've written more than you've written or co-authored twenty books, something in that neighborhood. Well, I've also ghosted books that are not, my name's not on the, so if you add those, they're probably 26 or seven by now. Wow. That's amazing. So let me, let me start with this question. When did you first realize you were a writer? That's a very interesting question, Brian. I think I realized it much sooner than I really realized. And here's why I said it. I turned to professional writing. The first time I got paid for anything was in I was probably in my mid-20s. And then I wrote my first book when I was like 30. And when I finally started to be a professional and all that, I moved to California. And (laughs) I was living in Venice, part of LA, near the beach. And a friend from college came to visit and I said something about my career and my work and all that. And I was there were times when I was struggling a lot. And he said, Phil, all you ever wanted to do was be a writer and live near the ocean. And I said, I said that? I didn't remember that. I was probably fantasizing. And I I said something like that. And when my first novel came out in the 90s, I got a letter from my high school girlfriend who saw it in a bookstore and realized that it might be me. And so wrote to me through my publisher and said, I always knew you'd be a writer. And it's like the strangest thing because I never took the aspiration seriously. I probably fantasized being a writer. But in retrospect, I realized that when I went through college and graduate school, 
I changed my major frequently because I kept getting interested in new things and I then getting dissatisfied and moving on to something else. And I didn't know what to do with my life. And it never occurred to me that the one consistent thing was that I wrote good papers. I got good grades when I had an essay or a term paper. And I was always complimented on my writing skill. And it never translated into my mind that that could be the the, the career I've been struggling to find. And maybe I should go to journalism school or something. That came later. And I only realized it in retrospect that the, the thing I really liked doing and the thing I kept getting compliments for, no matter what I was doing, was what I wrote. And then finally, I said, you know, maybe this fantasy of someday I'll, be a, I'll write a book, maybe that's more of like a career idea than an indulgence that you, you'll do someday. And so, but that, it came, it came late. And so it's a nuanced answer to your question. But once I committed to, once I said, this is what I want to do, then the question of making it happen and making, you know, it work financially and in lifestyle terms and all that, that was a challenge. But you know, I managed <laughs> over time to, to figure it out. That's awesome. What was the, first of all, I'm really struck by that story about how it, you know, it was something you were aware of, but not quite aware of and how the people in yeah. your life were able to reflect back and maybe help you confirm or become fully aware. But when you talk about it being challenging to adapt your life to being a writer, oh yeah, what specifically was challenging and how did you, how did you deal with that? Or how'd you overcome the challenge? Well, it comes back to the money question you asked in the lightning round, because, you know, earning a living as an independent writer, I didn't go to journalism school. I didn't think I, I had the personality for like being a, a reporter on the beat. I didn't want to do that kind of writing. I wanted to be a columnist. It's like, but you don't start out that way, <laughs> you know, and I actually, you know, books became the main genre, nonfiction books, and uh, with the addition of my novel. And so that was the challenge, you know, to maintain my independence and be able to write, but also earn a living. Because, you know, it's, it's a very unpredictable way of life. I'll tell you a funny story, may I? Okay, I had written my first book. It wasn't selling, but at least, you know, I had a book in print. I had a couple of other book ideas, and I wanted to continue working in that field. And I had a, an agent and we're trying to sell another nonfiction book. And, and I was really struggling. I had a bills to pay. I was young and all that. So I got a, a job. This will date me, but I did telemarketing for TV Guide. So I'd be in a room with other people on the phone and call people to renew their subscription and all that. And I hated every minute of it. I knew one professional writer. I won't give away his name, but he was a famous playwright. I happened to, when I was teaching transcendental meditation, I had instructed him and his wife, and we became friends. I was several hundred miles away from where they lived. And at the time, long distance telephone calls were expensive. But I was working on TV Guides, so I snuck in a long distance call on their you know, phone lines, and I called famous playwright. And I said, I need advice, you know, and I told him my circumstances and everything. And he said, look, 
I struggled a lot too when I was young and I was around your age. And I had it even harder because I had a wife and two kids. But I kept at it. And then in my early 40s, I finally had big success. And he had a big hit play, it was made into a movie and all that. So stick at it. He said, I read your you know, stuff, you, you have talent, stick at it. I said, fine, Bill, but in the meantime, you know, I, I have, what should I do? Uh, you know, I have earned a living. He said, do what I did. And I thought I was about to get the word from the heavens. And I remember reaching for a pen so I could write down what he said. And what he said was, marry a doctor. Because <laughs> he had, and she supported them while he was struggling. And, and, I, and we got a good laugh out of it, you know, and all that. My favorite part of that story is that you now have married a doctor. <laughs> well, that's, that's the payoff. But my wife became a doctor of Chinese medicine after we were married. It's a career change. <laughs> and, and by then, my playwright friend was, had passed. And so I could never tell him, you know, it took 40 years, but <laughs> I finally, <laughs> <laughs> That's great. but, but, the, but it was also a useful lesson. I mean, it was, it was facetious, but it was also practical. It was like, you have to pay attention to these things. And the other advice I got about money was always keep your overhead low. Cause you know, no matter what happens, if you're a freelance writer, you may run into fallow periods. You know, your um, your money's going to be unpredictable, so don't get yourself in a bind. And so I learned those things, and I managed. And then fortuitously, I was asked to collaborate on books and ghostwrite books, and that became a kind of day job when I needed to take on an assignment to to bring in some money. And it, it was much, and I resented it <laughs> at times, but it often, it turned out to be very fulfilling and I met some wonderful people. I learned a lot. And so sometimes doing what you have to do, just, it may feel like a compromise or that you're selling out or that you're giving up some of your creative integrity. But on the other hand, sometimes, you know, it's a blessing too. And, and, you know, Many, many writers and artists have had to make what they think were compromises, but that were also valuable and beneficial in many ways. And the collaborative work I've done on books was in that category. And so compromise isn't, uh, you know, always the bad thing. Sometimes it's necessary. And it's freed me up to then do some of the things I wanted to do and, you know, of my own that I may not have been able to afford the time otherwise. So th those are things I learned along the way. And if I can pass them along to others who are aspiring to the writer's life, I'm happy to. Yeah, thank you. What is your process for creating a book from concept to completion? What's the high-level overview of how you go about that? Well, if in that question is also the, the issue of getting the book published as opposed to just writing it because the, the the short answer to, to is is you just write and the process is different for everybody so let's talk about the process of writing a book as opposed to finding a publisher and all that books are long even my, my most recent book is is relatively short it's around 200 pages 
my two previous books were well over 300, but they take time and they have to be organized in a coherent way. Let's, I'm talking about nonfiction. Fiction is different in that structurally it's a narrative. And my biography of Yogananda was a narrative because okay, I, I took it chronologically. But uh, in nonfiction, the structure is different. So structure could be, as in a biography, chronological, or it could be thematic. So at certain point, structural organizational elements, even in a novel, have to be taken into account. Where do you begin? What happens next? What happens next? When do you reveal this? Do you do that scene now or then? All these things are structural elements, and there's a certain amount of inspiration and intuition and pure creativity that comes in. But there's also rationality, analysis, trial and error, maybe feedback from other readers, editors, and so forth. So it's always a combination of you know what Thomas Edison called you know inspiration and perspiration, but we we could call intuition or create pure creativity and the rational analytic process. There's always a back and forth between those things, and even a pure flow that people can get into and you know write a whole chapter or a whole essay or a whole book, you know, almost on automatic. But professional writing means you then go back and read it and you edit and you make changes and you move a sentence from here to there. That's what, you know, being a professional is all about. And the, the greatest writers, they, it always looks as if it just flowed. But to make it read like it just flowed, there was a lot of work and there were a lot of torn up pages and deleted files, you know, cutting and pasting and moving things around that enters into the process. And the important thing I always have to tell people who aspire to write or write books is they get down on themselves because they write something and then it doesn't read that well. And they think they're, they're, therefore they have to give up, that they're not very good at this. And I have, they have to be told, and I don't know why they weren't told in high school or college, that good writing requires rewriting and editing and self-reflection and self-criticism and objectivity. No one writes great first drafts. <laughs> nothing you read, nothing on your bookshelves or the bookstore is a first draft. It's just, that's just not the way things work. And so, uh, you know, a good first draft is one that can then be worked with. And, and that's, you know, that's what that same playwright I, I told you gave me that facetious advice about marrying a doctor earlier had given me very good advice saying that people can have talent, people can have a way with words. But to write professionally, to write in a way that gets published and that people will want to read and so forth. And if you want to get paid, it requires a certain professionalism. And that means you have to have the personality and the inclination to sit down and do the painstaking work of reading it and rereading it and maybe moving this section to there and seeing how that works and reading it again and changing that word or changing the punctuation. This can be painstaking, and not everybody's cut out for it. But the more you have that professional attitude, 
the better the final product will be. With this caveat, that process can be endless. And at a certain point, you have to say, I'm done. I've done enough. And then your editor, if you're lucky enough to have one, might say, mm, I have some suggestions. <laughs> a few things you might want to consider. <laughs> yes. And then, then you take that into consideration. But I, there's not one book I've published where if I don't open it up and start reading, I say, mm, wish I could redo that. And that's the curse of being a professional. But the value of knowing about rewriting is you don't give up on on the stuff you love and you don't you don't think you 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 know you don't have the skill. Now being a writer is very different from being a musician or an actor or a painter because not everybody says, you know, I want to paint pictures or I want to sculpt, but everybody says I want to write because everybody has written and everybody has a story and everybody you know, at one point or another, wrote a term paper or an essay that they like. So more people aspire to being published and getting their thoughts down in writing for other people to read than is true of the other arts and, and, and crafts. And nowadays, everybody can be read because self-publishing is real and blogging is real, social media is real. And so that's the good side. The bad side is Everybody can be read, and they don't necessarily realize that not everybody wants to read your first draft. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and I was just going to say, you know, what, what you're saying, too, about I, I think it's really remarkable in this age where there's more channels of communication, you know, more options available to us, and we're becoming increasingly visual as a society with photographs and videos that the book is far from dead. In fact, books are selling now more than ever before. It's really, it's really remarkable. Yep. Bookstores have problems. Paper is a, you know, the, the percentage of books being read on Kindles and smartphones is, grows all the time. But, you know, that's technology and technology changes. But when people say that, oh, the kids don't read. No, they read a lot. But they, they may be reading social media posts and they be, but they also, you know, they also read children's books and they also get assigned books in school. There's still people still read. If you looked at me on a subway or a plane, you might see me on my smartphone, but I may be reading a book on my smartphone, you know, because I have a Kindle app. And so, you know, people still read and the written word is, is still very much alive and I hope people, you know, pay attention to the craft and the skill of good writing and don't just think that, you know, these, the stuff we toss out there on social media is sufficient for good communication. <laughs> yeah. yeah, not a safe assumption, right? This next question assumes, which is maybe not fair, that sometimes in your creative process, in the act of writing, whether it's in a, a chapter or a project that you get stuck. But oh, assuming sure. you get stuck, how do you deal with that? Okay, I've often said to people, because I'm asked, what, how do you deal with writer's block? I don't believe in writer's block. I don't think there's any such thing. I just think there's times to write and times not to write. And so what I've learned is there's times when it's just not happening. So I don't push it. I say, okay, now it's time to take a break. Now go do the dishes. Now go take a walk. Now go make a cup of tea. 
or now be productive in a different way. The creativity is not there. You're stuck. You're not sure which way to go in this chapter, on this paragraph, whatever. Go back and edit what you wrote yesterday. Or now's the time, you know, do some of the research you need to do for this project or the other project. I've often working on more than one thing at a time. And that <laughs> you could say that having attention deficit disorder is, is an advantage if <laughs> so you can juggle different projects. But I'm often doing more, you know, a lot of things at the same time. So if I'm working on a book and I'm I'm stuck for a, a moment, I'll say, okay, you know what? Let me uh, go take care of those emails for the Spirit Matters interviews we're lining up. Or let me go, you know, do the revisions on my website. Or let me, let me do some of the research for the next book I want to write. Because I have, you know, some stuff I have to look up and, uh, you know, stuff I have to get, material I have to gather. So being a professional in this way means you, you could be doing different phases of a book or several books and juggle what you do according to how it suits your mood, your physiology, your circumstances at that moment. You can't always be in the flow. You can't always be creative. And that, that comes to a stop. And so that's the time to edit. That's the time to, you know, do research, whatever. What rituals or routines do you have as a writer? I begin every morning in, with meditation. I always will make then a cup of tea and I'll do stuff that may be seen as procrastination, but it just draws me into the day. I seldom start by writing, my professional writing. I probably I need to look at the headlines in the newspaper online. I need to check my email. I need to fill my belly. I need to do all these things. There are exceptions when I'll wake up and say, oh, now I got it. Now I know what to do with that section, with that chapter, and I'll go right to the computer and get it done. But that's moments, rare moments of inspiration and all that that can hit me at any time. But on a routine basis, you know, I have my slow starting way to get into it. But then I'll, I'll get to work. And I don't always do the same thing every day. It's, it's it different. There's people who love routine and they have a pattern. I'm not like that. And it depends on where I'm at with the particular main project I'm working on. But I'll say this. I very rarely will sit down and just start writing. I always will go back to what I wrote before and pick it up there, start doing some rewriting. It, you get back into the energy of the flow of, of the project, and then you continue from there. I, I always do that. You know, it's like, what did I write yesterday? All right, I'm, work, I'm in the middle of chapter six where I stopped. I'll go back to the beginning of chapter six and start doing some rewriting, and that gets me into the, the energetic flow of things. My experience, and I've heard other writers say they've had success with that technique. How do you avoid getting sucked into the editing and the rewriting, like you talked about, that sometimes with a, with a book can be an endless you know, endeavor. How do you continue to move forward you know, while reading what you wrote the previous day? You just keep doing it, and then, voila, you have a deadline. <laughs> that always helps. And Yeah, if you're a professional and you're under contract for a book and you have an editor and you, you, know, you, you have a deadline, you say, uh, 
okay, got to turn it in. Or, you know, you say, hey, I'm going to need more time. So I'm giving you advance notice. Let's change the deadline date. Or you say, hey, I'm still working on those last couple of chapters. I'm going to send you chapter one and two. Take a look. We all know it's going to change. We all know it's going to be edited. But at a certain point, you want the feedback. And at a certain point, you're obliged contractually if you're under, you know, with the, if, if you don't have a publisher, you don't have a book, then it becomes more of a subjective thing. And it's like, well, when do I stop? That's, I believe very strongly in the value of professional editors. And, and I think the advent of self-publishing, there's too many people who don't avail themselves of that kind of feedback and that kind of editorial help. And look, the best writers in history all had editors. And if you read their memoirs or you read their acknowledgments, they are extremely grateful for those editors who helped them and pointed out flaws and, you know, forced them to, to rewrite. That is terribly important. So at a certain point, you could say, look, I'm working this to death. Let me get some feedback. And you do that. And the truth is, then at a certain point, you just have to say, I could probably make minor changes in this forever, but I just got to stop. Or, you know, my publisher is going to cancel a contract if I don't just, you know, say we're done. And if they agree, then we, we go ahead. And if you're neurotic, you'll, you know, 10 years later, you'll say, I wish I could rewrite that. Yeah. <laughs> John, John Fowles, I think it was, one of the great British writers actually went back years, years later and rewrote one of his famous novels. I forget which one it was. But anyway, and, and, and famously just published it, rewritten, you know, because he's a different person now. He's read it. He wanted to make changes, and he did it. And, you know, that's the kind of thing we all wish we could do. <laughs> yeah, that, but, that uh, kind of reminds me of when, when I read Leonardo da Vinci's biography by Isaacson, and he talked about how he would add strokes even three decades later to paintings. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, and we evolve, and we see things fresh. I mean, that's, and that's one thing I would say. When you get stuck, when you get in a, even if you don't get stuck, you finish a draft, get away from it get away from it for a while. That's one of the values of having a professional relationship with an editor. You say, hey, hey, go here, read this. And in that interim, while somebody else is reading it, or you're working on something else, or you're taking your vacation or whatever, your brain resets. And then when you come back to it, you're reading it with fresh eyes. That getting away from it is always terribly important. And there's research, <laughs> excuse me, on this too, because a lot of what we think is procrastination is really incubation, where the mind has to get away from the obsession with the work and let the subconscious work and let the intuition work and just take a break. Taking breaks is terribly important in a writer's life. Yeah, I love the way that you, you frame that about it's not, not procrastination necessarily, it's incubation or it can be. That's beautiful. I, that reminds me of that scene in Mad Men when, uh, I, I forget the character's names, I didn't watch it all that much, but when the boss walks in and he says, you know, like 99% of the time when I walk in here, it looks like you're doing nothing. <laughs> right. And, and there's a thing, I forget, some famous writer said it and I've used it with my wife. It's like, oh, you may think I'm just staring out the window, but I'm working. And, and that, you know, and that'll happen to me. It's like, 
And I'm working a paragraph or I'm working something in my, my mind. And I may be even staring at a television, but I'm not taking anything in. It's just that's part of the life. That's part of the process. Yeah, that's so, so interesting. Well, and on the topic of paragraphs and sentences specifically, what are the qualities of a great sentence and how can we write more of them? Well, Brian, our time is up. And no, that's a tough question. <laughs> quality. My God. I'm sure there are English professors, you know, professors of literature who can answer that question in a, in a succinct way. And that sounds learned and erudite. To me, a good sentence is just something that resonates with the reader. There's good sentences that are a hundred words long. There's great sentences that are three words long. Call me Ishmael. What great, I mean, that's a, a sentence for the ages. What is this the simplest thing in the world? On the other hand, one of my favorite opening lines, that's a great opening line to a famous novel. The other opening sentence is Gabriel Garcia Marquez's first sentence in 100 Years of Solitude. It's, to me, one of the greatest sentences ever written. But so is, and it's long. It's something like, as he faced the firing squad, Colonel, oh, I forget his name, remembered the time his father took him to see ice. It's absolutely stunningly brilliant. You got a guy facing a firing squad, and he remembers this. It's the past, present, and future all at once in one complex sentence that just opens the mind to imagine anything, and, and you must know what comes next. Whereas, call me Ishmael is nothing, but we still remember it. So I don't know, you know, what makes one a great sentence and not the other? I have no idea. Part of it is the context. Call me Ishmael is Moby Dick. So it's, you know, if, I, if somebody else wrote, call me Ishmael, and then wrote, you know, some crappy story, we'd never know it. So there's context. What came before that sentence? What comes after that sentence? What does it reveal? What does it conceal? What mystery does it open up? What wisdom does it affirm? I can't answer the question, really. No, it's beautiful. That, that was perfect. And that sentence, by the way, many years later, as he faced the firing squad, Colonel Ariano Bondia was to remember that distant afternoon when his father took him to discover ice. Thank you, because <laughs> I had left out the first phrase. I started with the as he faced the firing squad. Oh, that's beautiful. No, that was, a, that was a wonderful answer. And I know we've gone long, and you have been very generous with your time. If, if you're okay, I would love just to end with two final questions. Okay, yeah. Oh my God, we did go long. <laughs> we did, yes. So, so the first question. This is called this is called procrastination. <laughs> Incubation. Because Incubation. by allowing you to do this and take me longer than I wanted, I avoided having to work. Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. So the the two questions, the last one, so you can be thinking of it if you want, is uh, is just about what advice or encouragement you would leave with listeners, writing related or otherwise, life. And, and, and the one before that is is about selling books, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's challenging enough just to get a book done, yes. and, and that's its own feat. But we, I think we all want to not only get our books written, but read out into the world and, and ideally get paid for the value we generate. So that's where I'll start. What have you learned about selling books? Well, 
for one thing, the process selling books now is vastly different from when I started writing professionally, and it, you know because of the internet and Amazon and the social media and all that. There's an intermediary question between writing a book and selling a book. There's the question of how to publish the book. So in my life, long before the advent of self-publishing, there were procedures, and I still do them because I I prefer work, working with a a professional a publishing house of thinking of an idea for a book, coming up with some kind of structure and proposal to submit and then get a contract and an advance and a deadline and then finishing the book and all that, which is the typical procedures. And they still apply, only things are different now in publishing than they used to be. But basically, that still applies. And even for fiction, typically, you know, you might write part of a novel and then submit it and hope to, you know, get an, uh, a, a, an agreement to write the book to completion. Or you can write the whole book and then submit it to publishers. That's also done and done well. Now you have the choice of self-publishing and the intermediate, uh, the sort of in-between of a large professional publishing house and pure self-publishing are these uh, service or companies that will take over some of the, the editing and production stuff and work with you in a partnership. So you have many more options for, for publishing. Either way, when it comes once a book is available, then the question of what you're asking is selling it. Well, if you're with a professional publishing house, you have to work out what they're going to do and what you're going to do. What is the marketing people going to do? What are the salespeople going to do? What are you going to do? What are the publicity people going to do? Should you hire a publicist? Can you handle marketing and publicity yourself? These are all questions that only individuals can answer, but they must be answered now in ways that were not the case before. Used to be, you know, writers didn't have to do much except they weren't expected to be marketing experts. <laughs> they, at best, they, they would show up for interviews or, you know, or cooperate with the publicity people. But now it's incumbent upon published authors to do more, to be very active on social media, to have a, you know, a platform, so to speak, and create one so their voice is heard. And so they are more active participants in the marketing and selling of books than ever, ever before. And not every writer is cut out for that. I struggle with it myself, and I'm probably better at it than some people, but I'm a lot worse at it than other people's. You know, so, but it's part of being a professional now. And so, you know, there's, there's a lot of guidance on how best to use Facebook and Twitter and other social media on you know how to cultivate an audience through blogging and newsletters and things like that depending on your genre depending on the subject matter there's you know different things that you would emphasize but it's a necessary burden now because even the biggest professional publisher houses expect it and they can't do justice to the marketing of every book, even with the best of intentions, because their resources are limited. And they make usually the business decision to put most of their attention on the famous authors and the books they deem 
that will make a big splash in the market of uh, you know pu- uh, the communications technology and talk shows and all the rest of it. So you have to know about marketing, and there are many resources available, including individuals and companies that you can hire if if you have the resources and inclination. So that's a long way of saying it's a necessary burden if you want to be read. I think it's important knowing that for anyone who aspires you know, to this or who's committed to it, that it's about so much more than just getting the manuscript done. Yes, but I want to add one thing. Knowing that and the prospect of marketing and publicity and all that can be intimidating because people who aspire to tell a story or to write a book about a subject they care about, they either don't have necessarily the talent for marketing, but they don't have the inclination either. It's not who they are. And so, but that fact should not discourage you from writing the book. Write it and then deal with that stuff. Because if you're compelled to write it, you got to write it. And if fewer people read it because you're not a marketing expert, then so be it. But on the other hand, there's this mysterious factor of word of mouth. And some of the, the, the most successful books are books that were not heavily marketed and found their audience just by people telling each other about the book. And that's the mystery. And at the same time, a lot of books that are heavily marketed don't, get, don't sell that much. Yeah, for sure. That's part of the, the magic and the mystery of the creative process. Yeah. You know, that's great. What was that well, last question? So the last one was about what advice or inspiration or encouragement would you leave listeners with, whether it's writing related or just general? Okay, I would normally be intimidated by a question like that, but I have just recently had to write something about the Bhagavad Gita, which has been a great source of guidance and inspiration for me over the years. And I've taught about it and written about it. And there's one passage in the Bhagavad Gita that if I had to single out one sentence as a guide to life, a full life, that would be it. The Sanskrit is yogasta kuru karmani. It means established in yoga, perform action. What it means, you know, we could talk another hour about, but it means essentially life is a a two-stroke process. It's an inside job. It begins inside. Turn within. Establish yourself in yoga. That means that doesn't mean, you know, stretch and bend. It means go within, come in contact with the deepest part of yourself, that part that we call the true self. That's beyond the personality and ego. That's the state of yoga. Tune in and then come out and perform action. Your action will be better and more fulfilling to do it. Remembering that inward part, that turning within part as a sanctuary from the craziness of the world and as a a platform, a foundation for fulfilling holistic proper action in the world. That to me is the most important thing. It's, It's if I have to think of one sentence to live by, it would be that. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, Phil, truly thank you so much for, for making time to, to do this interview with me. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I've loved getting to know you first through your book and then through our conversation. And I'm, I'm so glad we've connected. Well, thank you, Brian. I'm, I'm delighted to be part of this. I, I appreciate the work you're doing with the podcast and I'm delighted you found me. 
Me too. uh, Stay in touch. Namaste. Namaste. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at briamiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com. 